just declaring that you are the awesome God. We are in awe of you right now. You are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You are the awesome ruler, the creator, the master of this universe. We thank you for all that you have done. We thank you for everything that you have done. We thank you for what you have brought us to. We thank you for what you have delivered us from. And we acknowledge that there is no one like you. There is no God like our rock. There is no rock like our God. We glorify you. We praise you. Say, worthy is your name. In the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. We pray that you will speak to us tonight, that we will hear from the very throne room, and that we will only declare and decree what you have said. We praise you, we honor you, and we worship you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. 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 Hallelujah. Amen. You may be seated. You may be seated. Um, thank you for being here tonight. Um, we pray that it is always our expectations that, you know, when we come in together as a family that we're able to, you know, just learn something from the Word of God. And um, we want to also keep in mind that uh, Pastor Sharon lost her mother today, so please, if you can, send a text. Um, you know, let them know how you, you know, that you, that you send them your condolences, how you feel. Let them know that you love them. Um, and yeah, so just keep that in mind. Um, we're going to pick up with uh, where we started off. Um, this message is a continuation from Sunday. Um, and it is centered around Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 to 19. Um, if you can, let's just quickly turn there. I'm going to give a quick recap, and then I'm going to begin on verse 19, which we did not touch on on Sunday. So Matthew chapter uh, 16, verse 13 to 19. And it reads, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Verse 16 says, Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the, living, the son of the living God. Verse 17, Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. As we discussed on Sunday, this passage is in the context of Yeshua, or rather the, or rather the Heavenly Father, revealing to the disciples of Yeshua 
that Yeshua is the Messiah, the son of the living God. And this was done on their way to Caesarea Philippi. Uh, Caesarea Philippi, if you remember, was a place that had a history steeped in idolatry. The emperor of Rome was worshipped here. They had a temple that was built to um, Caesar. Um, and like many, like many cities in the uh, Rome, Roman Greco society, temples were erected in worship to Caesar. Uh, Julius Caesar was known to be called God and Savior during the Roman Civil War, which took place in 49 to 45 BC. Augustus Caesar, which is either his son or grandson, was believed to be the son of God because he was the child of Julius Caesar, and Julius Caesar was looked at as being a divine figure. And typically what would happen is that they did not necessarily worship emperors. In many places, it was not necessarily considered um, decent or right to worship an emperor while they were still living, but when they died, they were deified. In other words, they were, they were viewed as God or reached God-like status upon death. Also in Caesarea Philippi, um, the Greek god Pan was worshipped and believed to have lived in the cave below Mount Hermon, which was the major mountain there. And, this, um, and, and the cave of Pan was also known as the Gates of Hades uh, due to the belief that this cave was an access to the underworld of the dead. So sanctuaries were typically built around this cave because it attracted pagans who engaged in sexual perversions as part of their worship service. Um, as you know, the gates of Hades or the cave of Pan also held, or held a large reservoir of water that could not be measured. Um, so nobody knows exactly how deep the water goes. Um, they don't know how wide um, the pool is, but it is a source of water for the River Jordan. So for everyone who got baptized, water came from the Cave of Pan, or its nickname, the Gates of Hades. Um, it was a place of fear for those who were superstitious because at night a lot of noises would be made in the caves. And so the assumption is that spirits would, would be engaging in activity in the cave. So it was a place that they were scared to go at night. So it had a lot of this mysticism that was connected to this place. So they believed that either the Greek god Pan was in operation or other dead spirits that were coming from the underworld were coming from this place. And that's why it was known as the Gates of Hades because it had access to the underworld. We learned that the Son of Man was a title um, that was associated with the vision of Daniel 7 in which the Son of Man was presented to the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man was given the same honor and glory as the Ancient of Days. Uh, so if you read Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and verse 14, it has this, Daniel shows this vision of, of, of this human being who's approaching the Ancient of Days who we know is God. And this human being is receiving the same type of glory, the same type of honor, something that in the Jewish mind is only due to Yahweh is, is being given to the Son of Man. And so they understand, and so in their understanding, they know that the Son of Man has to have some aspect of divinity. Um, Yeshua calls himself the Son of Man often. And in the New Testament, the Son of Man, you hear this phrase 81 
times, and many times, if actually most cases, it was referred to Yeshua and Yeshua alone. The Son of Man is a title that was also associated with the Messiah. Um, the Son of Man was also associated with Yahweh's kingship. Because again, in Daniel chapter 7, verse 14, it states he was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom was one that would never be destroyed. So this was all associated with the Son of Man, and Jesus applies this title to himself. So the Son of, the son of God is also, a term, uh, is also a term associated with kingship. The sons of David as part of the Davidic covenant were called sons of God, which finds its ultimate fulfillment in the Messiah. In other words, they were called sons of God, but it was ultimately pointing towards the Messiah who has yet to come. Um, let's read, if we can, let's look at uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7. And we'll quick, quickly read from verses 12 to 16. And I'm also going to leave room for questions. So if you do have questions, uh, feel free to interrupt me at any time. Um, this is going to be somewhat informal, but, you know, uh, we'll cover some things, but I also want to make sure that any questions that you may have um, will get answered. So real quick, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 to 16. And it reads... When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son when he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod of men, with floggings inflicted by men, but my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, who I removed from before you. Verse 16, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. What's interesting is that if you know Israel's history, um, David, after David comes Solomon who takes the throne, right? Solomon builds the temple for God. He builds this magnificent temple, which is also viewed as the house of God. But because of Solomon's idolatry, the kingdom, was, it was prophesied that the kingdom would be taken from Solomon. But here, Yahweh says to, Dan, to, to David, that your kingdom will never be taken away from you and that your seed will actually build my house. But it's interesting that it wasn't Solomon who fulfills this, but it was pointing towards a greater king. Amen? So Yahweh promises David that his throne will see no end, so every son of David carried the messianic expectations. Yeshua is called the son of David. You can look at uh, Matthew chapter 12, verse 23. So the phrase son of David is associated with the Messiah. 
Zechariah chapter 14, verse 6 to 9. Let's go there real quick. Zechariah chapter 14, verses 6 to 9. And it says, on that day, there will be no light. The sunlight and moonlight will diminish. Verse 7, it will be a day known only to Yahweh. In your text, it might say the Lord, but that's, we know as a, it's a replacement for the name of Yahweh. Um, only known to Yahweh without day or night, but there will be a light at evening. Verse 8, on that day, living water will flow out from Jerusalem half of it towards the eastern sea and the other half toward the western sea, in summer and winter alike. Verse 9, on that day, Yahweh will become king over all the earth, Yahweh alone and his name alone. So the Messiah is Yahweh and, is, and he's expected to rule as Yahweh. The phrase son of God, son of man, and Messiah were all used to emphasize divine human kingship paradigm. In other words, when you use the, the term son of God, you're talking about a divine human king. When you use the, the term son of man, you're talking about a divine human king. When you use the, 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 the word Messiah, which means anointed one, or the Messiah to be more specific, you're talking about a divine human king. So all these phrases emphasize the divine human kingship. Amen? So on the throne, you're seeing a, a human, but you're also seeing God, which was a mind-blowing concept because in the Messiah, the, the divinity, which is God, and the humanity, uh, which is, represents man, is married Yahweh is being faithful to his design for humanity in Genesis 1.27 where he desired that humanity would demonstrate his dominion over the earth. Yeshua is the divine human ruler would ensure that the kingdom of heaven is reflected on earth. So in other words, because he is perfect, representing God who is perfect and also representing perfect humanity, no mistakes can be made as long as he's ruling, and he rules forever. In verse 18, we see the revelation of who he is as the Messiah, uh, divine human ruler, and this is uh, verse 18 of Matthew chapter 16. So we're going back to Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. We see that the revelation of who he is as the Messiah, divine human ruler, is the sure foundation that his people will be established upon. His congregation is a physical demonstration of kingship and domain. Death cannot defeat his congregation. His congregation began with the promises that Yahweh made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as well as the prophets. This congregation, again, I have to emphasize, is not a replacement of Israel, but rather the fulfillment of the promises that God made to Israel in which the nations of the world would become united with Israel as the people of God. This is extremely important. 
we talked about the issue of the word church in verse 18. Um, the word church comes from the Greek word ekklesia. Uh, church is a terrible, terrible translation, uh, English rendition or translation of the word ekklesia. Uh, the word ekklesia is, emphasizes the people. In other words, when you say ecclesia, you're talking about a gathering or a coming together of people. It's an assembly, a congregation. So to be technically correct, this would be considered world outreach synagogue, assembly, or congregation for all nations. But of course, church is popular. Church comes from the, it comes, I think, from the German word kirche, which means house or the Lord's house. Um, there's another word in Greek that would probably would have probably been translated to church, which would have uh, which would have meant things that were belonging to God. But the word ecclesia, which is the word that was translated from the Greek in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, um, adequately represents a coming together, a gathering, an assembly, a congregation of people, not church. Um, church more of emphasizes the physical building, but we know that God is not coming back for a physical building. He's coming back for a people. Amen? Um, so now we're at verse 19, which is going to be the message for today. It says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth is already bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth is already loosed in heaven. Um, this is probably, to be honest with you, from a charismatic Pentecostal standpoint, we have done this passage extremely wrong. If you ever wanted to launch a critique or a criticism of the charismatic church, it's typically centered around the understanding of this particular passage. Um, but this passage must be seen as the continuation of verse 18. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, Matthew chapter 16, verse 19. Sorry about that. So we know that this, this particular text has to, be, has to be a continuation of verse 18. The divine human king, Yeshua, is the ruler of the kingdom of heaven. When someone has keys to a particular thing, whether it be a house, car, office, etc., it is understood that you have authority or rights to operate or access whatever the keys are associated with. In other words, if you give your son or your daughter the keys to your car, you're giving them permission to go inside your car, and in some cases, you're giving them permission to eat off with your car, right? If they get pulled over, let's just say a, car, a police officer pulled them over and said, hey, you stole this car. No, these, these are the keys. I have, I have the rights to access this car. These are the keys. You have the rights to access the house when you have keys to the house. You can't complain that somebody, you know, that somebody broke into your house when they have keys to your house. Somebody gave them that authority, that right to have access. Keys to an office building. Um, in my, in, where I work, we have security entrance. You can't get in without your security badge. Um, so once I get to the door, I have to access my security badge. 
That gives me rights to enter that building. I don't care what day of the week it is. It could be on Sunday when the building is completely shut down. I have the rights to go inside that building and come out of that building because I have access to that building. Do I own the building? Absolutely not. But I have the rights to have access to that building. So in this passage, the keys to the kingdom of heaven is associated with binding and loosing. Binding and loosing are rabbinical phrases that are consistent with teaching the law and prohibiting and permitting what should be allowed. When the Jews, and this is a commentary, Dr. Adam Clark, he says when the Jews made a man a doctor of the law, they put into his hands the key, the key of the closet in the temple where the sacred books were kept and also tablets to write upon, signifying by this that they gave him authority to teach and to explain the scriptures to the people. Another commentary, Dr. John Exo says that every Jewish scribe, when fully trained and authorized to teach his brethren, received from his tutors and superiors a key to symbolize the knowledge of the divine will which he possessed and was about to dedicate to the service of his brethren. Many of them either carried a key at their girdle or have it woven into their robe as an open sign of the profession to which they have been set apart. So right here, we see that, key, that binding and loosing has absolutely nothing to do with devil, I bind you, or I lose blessings upon you. It has nothing to do with that. So how does this tie into the context? Yeshua has been declared the Messiah, the divine human king of the kingdom of heaven, which was revealed to his disciples, or Talmudin, from the Father who is in heaven. So here it is. Jesus says, who am I? Um, Peter says, well, you are the Christ. You're the son of the living God. Where did Peter get this information? He got the information from the Father. He didn't get it from man. He got it from the Father. So keep that in mind as we go further. In the, in the, in the rabbi Talmudin system, in other words, the rabbi was a teacher. The Talmudins were the, uh, were the disciples. Um, the goal of the rabbi was to teach their disciples to become rabbis. To become a disciple was a rigorous process in which requires you to have knowledge of the Torah. Disciples were selected if they showed that they had the capacity to learn. Otherwise, they would be encouraged to continue the trade of their family. So in other words, um, you go through Torah. Every uh, Every Jewish child goes through learning the Torah. After completing the Torah process, it is now determined whether you're capable of going further or, and if you're not capable of going further, then you are to go and continue in your family's trade. So if you were a carpenter, you continued as a carpenter. If you was a uh, fisherman, you continued as a fisherman. Whatever your family trade was in, you were encouraged to do that if you did not succeed to the level in which they saw was fit to, uh, to put you in, in to become a rabbi. So we have it here where you have Peter, John, James, Andrew, who were fishermen. Matthew was a tax collector. In other words, these men, were, these men were disciples who got second chances because initially they were counted out as being 
uh, incapable of becoming disciples. In other words, these were rejects. I want this to register. Christ selected rejects, people that were counted out in their system to become his disciples. He did not pick the, the brightest ones in the bunch. He picked failures. He picked those who probably couldn't get GEDs to become his disciples. So he basically chose unqualified men to be his disciples. Now he is nearing the end of his ministry, which he would need to promote them. Verse 19 is a sign of their soon coming promotion in which these men, specifically Peter, was able to receive revelation from the Father in heaven concerning the Son. Now Yeshua has deemed, that, has deemed them capable as functioning as rabbis, therefore, therefore able to render judgment and teach the law just like him because they have demonstrated the ability to hear from the Father. Other rabbis during the time of Jesus did not get this right. There were plenty of disciples of different rabbinical schools during the time of Jesus that did not get this right. They did not adequately, they did not adequately demonstrate the ability to hear from the Father. These unqualified men, these failures, these rejects, these people that we typically would have counted out Heard from the Father, and as a result from hearing from the Father, Jesus says, now you're ready to become rabbis. So within a span of three years, these men are able to become teachers of the law, and as doctors of the law, Yeshua is giving them keys, signifying that they now have the authority to make decrees. Back at Matthew chapter 16, verse 19, and, and, I, and I have to show this because this right here is in, the, is in the Holman Christian Standard Bible. It says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bound on earth is already bound in heaven. And what you loose, whatever you loose on earth is already loosed in heaven. These soon-to-be-promoted rabbis and the body of Christ who have received the revelation that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God from the Father, have the authority to teach the law and make decrees based on what the Father in heaven has already said. Understand that the law was just not the written word of God, but words that proceeded from the mouth of God. What am I saying here? What, what I'm saying is that in order for these men to be qualified to teach the law, Jesus is saying that the only qualification that you need is to hear from the Father. And because you can hear from the Father, you have the rights to make decrees that the Father has already decreed. So in other words, you're not doing something new. You're doing what you heard the Father, uh, Father do. Jesus said that in his entire ministry. I do nothing of my own accord. I only do what I hear the fathers do, you know, hear the father do. I only do what I see the father doing. Wherever the father says go, I go. Wherever the father says don't go, I don't go. 
Jesus did that entire thing. So Jesus basically demonstrated that he was the he was right fit to be a doctor of the law because he could hear from the father. And he's saying to the disciples now, because you can hear from the father, you can now do exactly what um, what I need you to do. I don't have to be here anymore physically to tell you what you what you need to do. You're hearing from the father. You don't have to ask me directly. The question is, what did the father say? When issues arise in the body of Christ that are considered gray areas because we do not have an actual rule concerning them, for instance, should Christians be allowed to go to the movies? Uh, it is the responsibility of the leadership to come to a consensus on, on the matter, uh, basically come to a consensus of what should be done in each and every area that is considered a particular gray area. And again, that consensus is typically fitting for your local body. In other words, there's things that we do here at WalkFan that make sense in WalkFan that would make absolutely no sense to a church down the street. Why? Because the decrees, the things that we are doing here, we hear from God concerning this particular house, not 12 Stone, not World Changes or whatever other churches out there. The decision... Um, the decision must emphasize unity. The decision must not violate the freedom that we have in Christ, and at the same time, it cannot jeopardize the integrity of the gospel. There are certain practices, again, that we do at Walfan that may not be done at other assemblies, but helps us to be who we are, um, who we are right here, because the circumstances in every congregation is unique. So let's see. Uh, binding and loosing, uh, and, and loosing in action. Let's turn to Acts chapter 15. And to kind of set the scene, in Acts chapter 15, the council of Jerusalem, they're convening, and the main issue that came to the forefront was what's, what was to be done about the Gentiles who are coming into the knowledge of Yahweh through the Messiah Yeshua, um, this was a highly debated issue because it was not lawful for the Jews to be in communion with the Gentiles or the nations around them. In order for fellowship to be permissible, in order for there to be um, a coming together, a unity between the Jews and the Gentiles, according to the Mosaic law, the law of Moses, it was required that the men would be circumcised, showing that they are now part of the covenant. So this was a really, really, really big issue. So Acts chapter 15, verse 13 to 21, this is an example of binding and loosing. After they stopped speaking, remember, this was a huge argument. I can imagine, you know, food being thrown left and right. Uh, people ready to fight, people, you know, you know how it is when we don't agree with a, a person sitting right next to us and how heated it can get. This was a very heated issue. So Acts chapter 15, verse 13, after they stopped speaking, James responded, brothers, listen to me. Simeon has reported how God first intervened to take from the Gentiles a people for his name. Verse 15, 
And the words of the prophets agree with this, and it is written, After these things I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. I will rebuild its ruins and set it up again. Verse 17, so the rest of humanity may seek Yahweh, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, and, and declares Yahweh, who does these things? Verse 18, known for, from long ago. Verse 19, therefore, in my judgment. Notice he didn't say in God's judgment. He's saying in my judgment, my personal judgment. We should not cause difficulties for those among the Gentiles who turn to God. Verse 20, but instead, we should write to them to abstain from these things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from eating anything that has been strangled, and from blood. This was never discussed prior to this. To this, 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 this getting together. There was nowhere in the Bible that said that this is what should happen when Gentiles come into the faith. Nothing was discussed. However, you see that James, he speaks and he takes it upon himself to make this judgment. This judgment has stood the test of time. Till this very day, this judgment is law. They saw the hand of God at work. Again, testimonies. The Gentiles are coming to faith. Acts chapter 10, the centurion, uh, the Roman centurion, um, I forgot this guy's name, um, Cornelius, right? Peter didn't want to go to Cornelius' house. Why? Because Cornelius was a Gentile. God forbid I have anything to do with Gentiles. Peter goes to Cornelius' house at the behest of God. He gets there, and, he's, and, and while he is preaching, while preaching is taking place, the Holy Spirit fell upon these Gentile men, people who were not part of the covenant of God, people who had, you know, that didn't have an intimate understanding of who Yahweh is, didn't have an intimate understanding of Moses, didn't know Abraham. There was no connection, nothing to say that these men belonged to be, you know, were a part of, or, or this family should be a part of this covenant. They were not circumcised. But Peter sees this. He sees that the Holy Spirit is falling. These guys are speaking in tongues, prophesying, praising Yahweh. Gentiles. They're not Jews. This is, a, this is a radical paradigm shift. I know that it's, it's kind of weird for us reading it, but you got to imagine, it's like, um, it's kind of like Hitler, right? We all know Hitler. Hitler and Jewish people are like salt, it's like oil and water. You mention Hitler around Jewish people, there's a fight that's ready to happen. Let's bring it home. You mentioned the KKK around black people. We're going to have some problems. But yet imagine somebody black going to a house of a KKK member, knowing that he's in the KKK, thinking this guy has nothing, me and him have nothing in common, that if it came down to it and there were no laws to govern this country, I would kill this man right here and there. You go into the house of this KKK member, 
And the minute you are sharing the gospel, not something that you want to do, because remember, he's in the KKK. You don't want him in heaven. You don't want him anywhere around you. You don't want him in your church. You don't want him any. He's a KKK. Yet, while you're preaching to him, this KKK member now demonstrates a love and affection for God and renounces racism. Imagine how shocking that can be. So, so basically, this is what's happening to Peter. He's walking into the house of this Gentile, and this Gentile is glorifying God. What did Peter say? What would what withhold us from baptizing these men in the name of Jesus? Seeing that God has basically counted them as one of us. So Peter takes this report to the, uh, to the, to the, um, to the council of Jerusalem. He tells them the story. This is what happened. These men are just as valid in the family of God as we are. We cannot keep them from being inside the family. So we have to issue a decree. Let us decree something that shows that we are accepting of them, but they must at least abide by certain things to ensure that these men are being faithful to the covenant that God, is the, that God had promised Abraham. That's what's taking place. There was no rules to say this is how it should happen. But because these people saw God in action, the Holy Spirit falling, these guys are speaking in tongues, because they saw God in action and they consulted scriptures, they read from Isaiah and, and the book of Amos. Those are the two scriptures that they, quote, that they quoted in this text. And both of these passages emphasize that Gentiles will be coming into basically coming into the house of God. So, number one, they saw the hand of God at work. Number two, they consulted scriptures. Number three, they issued a decree. Majority of the New Testament were written in the context of binding and loosing. For instance, um... 1 Timothy chapter 2, I believe it's verse 5 to 11. I could be wrong, but if I'm wrong, you know, count it against my humanity. Um, there's a report that women were in the church of Ephesus engaging in false teachings. And these were married women. These were, not, these were married women engaging in false teachings. Paul gets wind of this, and he issues to uh, Timothy who was one of the elders at the church in Ephesus. And he's telling Timothy, basically, listen, um, basically he forbid, he says, I forbid these women to teach. Uh, forbid these women to, have, to exercise authority or usurp authority over men. That was an act of binding loosing. Issuing a decree because these women were violating the word of God. I'm assuming that Paul heard from heaven, he saw the hand of God, and he issued a decree. Unfortunately, we've used that decree to say that women should not preach. I don't know where that came from, but that is absolutely false. That was not what Paul was tackling. What Paul was tackling false teachings in Ephesus. And that's a completely different scenario that took place in Ephesus. But all I'm saying is that binding and loosing was 
pretty much was the majority of the New Testament for us. Um, what else? Issues like church discipline. These were decrees based on binding and loosing. Uh, false teachers, how to handle false teachers, binding and loosing, uh, and loosing dealt with these situations. What about bad doctrines? Binding and loosing. That's what basically, so every time Paul writes to the church in Corinth, to Timothy, to, to Philemon, to uh, Ephesus or whatever, dealing with issues that were taking place in every one of these places. To Rome, dealing with an issue there. Uh, Peter writes, dealing with issues. James writes, dealing with issues. So the majority of the New Testament was based off of binding and loosing. Amen? Any questions? Any questions? You know I'm going to ask a question. Okay, verse five, eight. eight. Okay, hey, I, you know, if I can get the book right, that's good enough for me. <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you. Let me see if I can ask a question. Ah. This is a good one. It has been argued that, um, that homosexuality is under the Old Testament law. And if we say that homosexuality is deemed is, is deemed as being immoral, as de is deemed as being immoral, not right in the eyes of God. Why is it that Christians can eat pork, which is also written in the same law as being an unclean animal? How would you solve that issue? And this is a, and this is a question they throw at you. I've heard it so many times. Want me to ask it again? All right. In the Old Testament, in the book of Leviticus, I believe, chapter 18, homosexuality is deemed as being immoral in the eyes of God and was forbidden under Old Testament law. But in the same book of Leviticus, it is also written that you should not eat the pig, that the pig is an unclean animal that you should not partake of it. How would you deal with this issue? As a New Testament believer, I've said that no what goes into a man defines a man. Mm -hmm. So, in terms of the pork, but when it comes to homosexual, it's like Think about it before you add it. Mm -hmm. So to me, it's an action. Okay. So it's a sin that you committed. That's, you act it out 
to me, as a child of God, I don't know. Are you asking it? <laughs> I'm asking it to you as a New Testament believer. <laughs> so, so I believe that uh, the Bible said that not what goes into a man defines a man, mm -hmm. which is pork. Okay. Then when it comes to the sin of uh, homosexual uh, something, uh, to me it's like the sin that you sin against your own flesh, okay. which is the body of temple of God. Because okay. the Bible said that our body is the temple of the Lord, where okay. the Holy Spirit dwells. So that's the way I look at it. I don't know. Okay. That's one answer. Anybody else? Okay. Let me say, let me say something. Um, for the sin of um, homosexuality, God did not create us as homosexuality people. No. So whether you are a New Testament believer or you are an Old Testament believer, is a sin. You don't have to be homosexual. So that should be settled. Whether you're a um, New Testament person, homosexuality is an abomination to God. So, um, But the one of the pork thing, I don't like pork. If you want to eat pork, you can eat pork. I don't think this. <laughs> mm, mm, mm. uh, uh, um, when, when the Bible, when Peter was talking about the dream that he had mm -hmm. when the sheet came down and he said, do not call. When God was showing him all kind of animals mm -hmm. to kill and to eat, whatever. Mm -hmm. And he says, uh, I can't really remember all that he said, but um, I don't really know what I, I don't know. But for me, I don't like to eat pork. But if you want to eat pork, Bible says, whatsoever you sanctify, whatsoever mm -hmm. you bless, <laughs> it's blessed. Okay. So. Anybody else? Anybody else? You know what keeps me from having an answer uh, to like really go into all these answers? It was already written. Council of Jerusalem, this was part of their decree. Let's read it. Verse 20. Acts chapter 15, verse 20. But instead, we, write, we should write to them to abstain from things polluted from idols, polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from eating anything that has been strangled, and from blood. So it's already there. They solved, this was an, basically binding and loosing, they solved an issue for us that we don't have to wrestle with. They solved it. Let me throw a... Ooh, how about this one? Ah, should, should Christians get involved in dating? I'm asking, there's a lot of parents in this room, I expected that. <laughs> should Christians be involved in dating? Well, it depends on the definition of dating. Okay. Okay. Dating includes courtship. So courtship. Christians are encouraged to, to get involved in courtship so that mm -hmm. you uh, understudy one, other, one another before you get married. Okay. To see whether there's um, will the couples, the two individuals are compatible. Okay. So, but the present day dating goes to the extreme, okay, which is not, uh, which is at variance with uh, courtship. Okay. okay? And uh, which, uh, for instance, involves some uh, aspect of fornication. 
Okay, so in that case, the patients are not encouraged to get involved in such uh, activities that are uh, instead of getting involved in fornication. Okay. So as long as no fornication is involved, yeah. dating is fine. Okay. Okay. You agree? Uh, about the first question, I'd like to uh, answer any question with scriptures, which is um, mm -hmm. 1 Timothy chapter, one, chapter 4. Uh, from the beginning, uh, from the verse 1 says, um, Now the Spirit speak expressly, saying, says that in the last time some will depart from the faith mm -hmm. which we are in, giving heed to deceiving spirit, doctrines mm -hmm. of the demons. Mm -hmm. Speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience set with hot iron, mm -hmm. forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods mm -hmm. which God created to be received with thanksgiving. Mm -hmm. So if God created everything to be received with thanksgiving, mm -hmm. there shouldn't be anything that you cannot eat. So if it's good to you, it's, if it's good, excuse me, if it's good for you, there's some people that eat, uh, sir, cockroach. You have a lot of people that have, and it's good for them to you, it's bad. <laughs> and the Bible says, now look at this, for everything, Bible says, for every, okay, where's that place? Okay. Everything which God created is to be received with thanksgiving uh -huh. by those who believe. So, mm -hmm. if you believe, there shouldn't be anything, mm -hmm. animal, pork, whatever, name it. Yeah. You should eat and bless those things and eat because you believe it that it will not harm you. Then go ahead and eat it. Mm -hmm. That's what the Bible says. Yeah. So, if it's created by, to be received with thanksgiving, and by those who believe and know the truth. So, if you look at the Bible, for, and verse 4 said, every creature of God is good. Mm -hmm. And nothing is to be refused. Mm -hmm. If it is received with thanksgiving. So, anytime you ask questions, it's better we use the scripture to answer that question. So, this is the scripture I have. Let me ask you a question. Go ahead. And what you're saying is actually good. Yeah. But in the time that it was written, was it scripture? What? Was it what? At the time that 1 Timothy was written, was it scripture? Was, was it scripture at the time it was written? Well, the scripture was not there, but it was talking about the New Testament now. Yeah. I mean, I, I, you know. A new, yeah. Right. We're in a new dispensation of, uh, mm -hmm. you know, things. Though mm -hmm. things have changed, technology, all kind of things. Mm -hmm. So, but the scripture says everything that God created mm -hmm. is good. Yeah. If you look at the beginning, you see that Bible says all the things he created was good. And you get to a point and he said it was very good. Mm -hmm. So, what? it now depends on mm -hmm. you as a believer to choose to say, okay, I, this is my choice. I loved it. This is good. Mm -hmm. And to you, it's just like the food you like. I said, no, I, I can't eat it. Mm -hmm. Since I got to America, I said, what kind of food is this? All their food is full of sugar and, mm -hmm. and, and salt. Yeah. That is it. And you tell somebody, I said, oh, that's food. This is too salty. No, I know. Mm -hmm. There's no salt there. So their taste bird is so used to that. Mm -hmm. that and 
So, but to them it's good. To yeah. me, it's not good. So, yeah. Bible says everything that He created is good yeah. and yeah. is to be received with thanksgiving. Yeah. So, anything you want to eat, bless it. Except you don't want it, and say, "Okay, I can't receive this." Mm -hmm. yeah, so, yeah. I mean, I totally agree with you. The reason why I asked that question is that this was a letter that was written. The only Bible that they had at that time was the Old Testament. Yeah. So when so, you say that it's scripture, yeah. And the time that this was written, this was not considered scripture. However, yeah. it was considered authoritative. Yeah. Because this was an act of binding and loosing. Yeah. The apostle wrote it. It must be accepted as law to whoever it wrote. You know, and that's why I was trying to make. That's why I was trying to allude to because the the, the what we're trying to do with is issues of binding and loosing. For right? example, sorry. For example, look at what Paul says about mm -hmm. uh, the, what you talked about, and uh, and was talking about women should be forbidden to speak in the church. Mm -hmm. That was his own understanding as at that time. His own understanding because he's not married and he feels that. Women has no authority to speak in the church. Well, that's so. not really what he was saying. But it was the, the, the issue with Ephesus. I'm sorry, you want to go ahead? You sure? <laughs> the, the issue that was taking place in Ephesus is that there were a lot of false doctrines yeah. that were being, that were specifically being spoken by the women in the church. Yeah. Ephesus was more, of a, um, was more of a society that catered to women's superiority as far as in the spiritual, in spiritual applications and things like that. They had old wives' tales that they were telling. For instance, um, that it was not good for women to have children. You know, that was an old wives' tale. But that was something that some of these women were actually teaching. And so what Paul was trying to tell them specifically, those women specifically, is that they must be quiet and they must learn. But he wasn't making this a broad, a general law. No, not at all. But he was dealing with a specific issue. But a lot of times, because we don't read things in context, we tend to make judgments based on something that had nothing to do with what we're making judgments on. Sorry. Anybody? issue of pork, I think everything everything should be done with love. Mm -hmm. Like, no, my husband doesn't eat pork, so we don't eat pork in the house. No pork? Pork? Pork is beautiful. Pork. No pork? That's fine. I'm teasing. <laughs> okay. I'm teasing. He, do, he doesn't eat pork. Uh -huh. But I like pork. I might have. Went over. Correct. 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 Fourteen. Say Romans fourteen covers that. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was it, that was at the time it was written. It was not scripture, but it was authoritative because the apostle Paul wrote it, and it became scripture for us 
because we accept that the Apostle Paul and Peter and, and James and John were authoritative writers. You, you get me? So that's, that's the reason why. So when it says that, like, for instance, when Paul writes in, uh, I think it's in 2 Timothy 3.16, he says that all scripture inspired by God, given for correction, instruction, re rebuke, and, and reproof, and all that good stuff. Um, the New Testament was not written at that time. It was only the Old Testament they had. So the, in other words, to check what Paul was saying, you had to go to the Old Testament. However, we today have the luxury of having both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And the reason why we count the New Testament as the word of God is because there, they were bind, because it was established upon the concept of binding and loosing. If we believe that the apostles were deemed by God, then we have to deem that what the apostles wrote was written as if God wrote it himself. Feel me? They had discernment from God. They saw what God was doing. They, 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 uh, they checked the scriptures. In other words, they went to the Old Testament to validate, you know, validate it, and then they issued a decree. That is the concept of binding and loosing. It's not about, devil, I bind you, and I loose blessings here and there. had nothing to do with it. Um, but, yeah. Um, let's go ahead. It's 823. Um, if you have any questions, I'll be glad to take them, but we do have to close out. Amen? Uh, so also, in the Bible, look at what Jesus said about eye for an eye. He referred to mm -hmm. what happened in the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. uh, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. And he said, I'm not trying to do that, but mm -hmm. if your brother uh, swap you on the right cheek, what did he say? Turn the other cheek. Amen. <laughs> Amen. Well, let us pray. Father God, we just thank you so very much for your word. Um, we pray that it's uh, something that we can take and learn from. We pray, Father God, that we can uh, just glean from your word and give us instructions for how we should live our everyday life. Uh, we pray that as we leave here, um, that we will arrive to our destinations, home, work, wherever, safely, um, that we will have yet a chance to live another day to glorify you. We thank you for all that you've done. We love you, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.